Welcome back to DermCast TV. It's Rob Cascale in Washington, D.C. for the SCPA Summer Conference. We have the pleasure of sitting with Dr. Jenny Clark. Welcome, Jenny. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. It's great to be here. And you lectured this morning in the conference, uh, two heavy hitters. You covered rheumatology, dermatology, uh, and uh, autoimmune diseases. And uh, this is a big bulk of, of what requires a lot of attention in dermatology. So we're gonna talk about this a little bit. But first, uh, you're at the University of Utah, mm -hmm. but you trained at Penn State, as I understand. Is That's that correct? correct. That's right, She's, yeah. we, got a, we got a lion in the house. Right? <laughs> That's give, right, I'm a Nittany lion right, gotta give at a heart. Shout out. That's blue and white. <laughs> right, I like it, hey, you, gotta, you, gotta represent, you gotta represent for the home team. Well, you've been at University of Utah for a handful of years, as mm -hmm. I understand. So you're part of the teaching and academic program there. You have an emphasis in autoimmune diseases, and I can tell you, at least for me as a clinician, these, these are one of those things where you step back and say, oh man, this is something that requires a little thinking, a little work, diagnostics, therapeutic complications. So what, what attracted you this, to this realm of dermatology? Was there something specific? I think there were a couple of things that made me really want to do autoimmune skin disease. Um, probably as a, as a student learning about just disease in general in dermatology, this was the coolest aspect to me because this is where the skin can really be a sign of a systemic disease. And I, this is what excited me about dermatology in general. You can look at somebody from the outside and know that you can make an impact on their overall health in addition to taking care of their skin. And you might be the first one to pick up on something um, that, that's really significant uh, health-wise for them. So I thought that was really cool. I also have a family member. My grandmother had lupus. And so growing up, I grew up with this family member who couldn't go outside and play with me as a, as a kid and, and do the outdoor kinds of things because of her sun sensitivity. And so I think probably at a really, you know, deep level that that influenced me uh, as well. And that's a great broad, because isn't dermatology largely just immunology? And you know, there's so many of the diseases are driven uh, in autoimmune and even immunopathology. So it, it just sort of makes sense, but uh, that's great. So we're glad you're doing it. We need smart people in these fields. And your lectures today covered a wide range of things, um, histopathology, clinical presentations, therapies, pitfalls and therapies, and particularly uh, diagnostics, but I'm going to ask you, since we have a lot of things we could talk about, let me ask you, are there pearls? What would you want clinicians to know about, let's say, autoimmune diseases in general in terms of clinical pearls, anywhere from therapy to diagnostics or, or uh, anything in between? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of information and it's really complicated stuff. Um, I think a couple, a couple of takeaway points um, would just be that Rheumatologic disease is something that should be in the back of our minds when we're seeing patients with photosensitivity, when we're seeing patients who have um, Raynaud's phenomenon, when we're seeing patients really who have rashes that don't respond like we think they will. Perhaps we initially thought they had dermatitis or, or uh, a medication reaction or a viral reaction, but instead of getting better in the time or with the treatment we prescribe, they're not. We should start thinking about systemic diseases with skin manifestations. Um, so I, I think those are a few key pearls for when to start getting that rheumatologic disease thought process going, um, as well as when patients have rash with any really systemic symptoms. Um, so that, that's, I think, when you should start thinking and considering rheumatologic diagnoses. Okay. So 
Uh, this is a commonly asked question. You attend these lectures, and a, a very, very common question is, if you identify cutaneous uh, lupus disease, okay, and this could be of any uh, sort, subcutaneous, mm -hmm. uh, discoid, et cetera, uh, even acute. So when we see these things, do you still feel like, is, does that apply to the sense that maybe it's systemic disease that tends to make you lean towards doing labs at that time? Is there a situation otherwise, or perhaps routinely, that you order labs in these folks, uh, screening labs? Absolutely. I think in, in almost all of these patients, ordering screening labs, um, as soon as we make a diagnosis or are suspicious of one of these diagnoses, like lupus or dermatomyositis or scleroderma, um, is definitely something we do right away. And, and it's, not, it's something we shouldn't be scared in dermatology to be the ones to take that first step. Um, patients come to us first because they often start with skin disease. Um, but when we see those, I think, those conditions, starting the lab work up, looking at their overall health, starting with a CBC and a CMP, making sure that we're not seeing problems with blood counts, liver, kidney function, ordering that ANA test, and one of the pearls I'll say about ANA, always get the test that gives you the titer. It's much more sensitive. So a lot of times we have false negative ANA tests with uh, the, the just qualitative positive or negative ANA test. Um, but starting at least there and doing a biopsy. And at that point, if you're still thinking about autoimmune skin disease like lupus, like dermatomyositis, you can extend your lab work up from there. Great. And let me, so let me just put this in perspective, a little bit further clinical perspective uh, a scenario. If you have a cutaneous lupus, uh, let's say you've diagnosed discoid lupus or perhaps subacute cutaneous lupus again, I'm mentioning those because they often don't end up having systemic diseases, mm -hmm. but can. Where in those scenarios uh, would you draw labs? Let's say you've confirmed yeah. the diagnosis. Are you still doing labs? So in those patients, yes, I'll still do labs because while most of them don't have systemic or internal organ involvement, a significant percentage will. And in some patients, that won't begin until 5, 10, 15 years after the skin manifestation began. So not only do I check them at the time of diagnosis, I continue to monitor that yearly uh, for evidence of, of internal involvement, really for the duration of my time treating them. And when would you refer them to rheumatology? Do you wait for the, man the disease to manifest systemically, or is there a benefit to sending them right out of the gates given their skin disease and perhaps even a largely negative lab or diagnostic workup? I think we as in dermatology can take care of a lot of these patients without having to have them see other specialists. We always work in tandem with primary care physicians because these patients certainly still need to have routine his history and physical periodically. But no, I don't send all of these patients just automatically to rheumatologists or other specialists. If the lab workup or their symptoms suggest that they have involvement of organs other than their skin, absolutely. Then I pick up the phone and I get the correct specialist involved. Um, but in cutaneous lupus and in dermatomyositis, there are a large number of patients who won't have those problems, and we're really best suited to treat them because we understand how to treat skin disease. That's a good answer, and I think sometimes uh, in dermatology, there's the I think it's probably more, I wonder, the sense that you just don't want to miss anything. So I think where maybe that happens. So let me ask, you probably answered this, but let me ask you one more specific question. If you have a positive ANA 
is that an automatic referral to rheumatology for you? So a positive ANA is not automatically a referral to rheumatology. Patients who have skin-limited lupus usually have a positive ANA, but they don't necessarily, most of those patients aren't going to have systemic disease. Uh, similarly, patients with dermatomyositis, about 20% of them will not even have muscle disease. Right. So I'm not referring those patients automatically. Um, a lot of patients will have a positive ANA, and if it's a low titer, it may not even mean that they're going to have autoimmune disease at all. So I think that positive ANA shouldn't be just a knee-jerk referral uh, lab result. Again, it seems then that the answer is really contextual in terms Absolutely. of what's in front of you. So let's turn our attention for uh, a little bit to immunobullous uh, diseases. You talked about this in your lecture earlier this morning. Something that strikes me about these diseases is mortality. Yeah. And can you talk about this in context of making these diagnoses? What do we need to make sure that our, uh, what do we need to do clinically to be sure, whether it's again, therapeutically, diagnostically, that these patients are not moving down a track of some morbid outcome? For the immunobullous diseases, particularly in the pre-steroid era, mortality rates were really high. Um, and these are patients that frequently have erosions that affect their mucous membranes that can affect their ability to swallow, their ability to see. So, so really important to diagnose them correctly and to diagnose them early. What I would do in these patients, first of all, a good clinical exam, the immunobullous disease patients, for the most part, the exam gets you on the right path. You see blisters, you see erosions. Doing a biopsy and always doing a biopsy for direct immunofluorescence when you're suspicious of an immunobullous disease, because that is the gold standard diagnostic test uh, for immunobullous you disease. Did, you mentioned that in your lecture today. Absolutely, it's really and that's, important. And it's good because we're good at that. We can biopsy We things. can do that. Yeah, we can do um, that. We're really the ones who recognize and diagnose immunobullous disease. But then treating aggressively early is important as well. Um, most of the immunobullous diseases are not so much associated with systemic diseases, so we're usually not referring those patients out to others, uh, but rather we wanna make sure that we're getting their disease under good control, getting it under good control quickly and safely. In fact, I would say probably at this point, the morbidity and mortality we see in our immunobullous disease patients, unfortunately, is related to immunosuppressive therapy long-term that they end right. up on. And this is what we have to do. Uh, we know we can take prednisone alone and look at mortality rates from long-term sure. prednisone use for any disease. Uh, uh, but this is the trap, right? Mm -hmm. we, we get stuck with the prednisone because it works and that's what they want and then we feel better because they get relief. So that, that's very tricky. If you were to say, uh, again, in terms of um, long-term management of immunobullous diseases, do you have a hard line or maybe some hard uh, guideline for folks in terms of uh, prednisone use, mm -hmm. let's say specifically, um, how would you uh, describe that in terms of, okay, let's minimize bad outcomes? Absolutely. Prednisone or corticosteroids, they work great. They work quickly, which is important. We are trying to kind of quiet the disease as quickly as possible. But I think setting expectations with patients at the beginning is really important, explaining that while these are effective and work quickly, they have a lot of side effects, and those side effects happen to nearly everybody who stays on steroids long enough, so they're not good options long term. So at the same time that I'm starting steroids in a patient with a, a immunobullous disease, I am starting steroid sparing agents. And now we have rituximab approved by the FDA for pemphigus. 
Um, we use it off-label for pemphigoid as well. Uh, and this is, this is the drug that I think is probably one of the greatest recent advances in the treatment of immunobolus diseases that we have. It works really well and can cause uh, long-term remissions for patients. I've had the opportunity to see that work once in a patient, and it was, once it was enough for it to be convincing. I, I agree with you. It's, it's great to have the therapy. Hopefully it will open up the avenues of uh, more monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. for these therapies. Uh, speaking of which, let's end by what is in the future for these diseases, autoimmune uh, immunobolus diseases? What is, where's research taking us these days? Uh, what do we have to look forward to, if anything? So I think just like the research in psoriasis and atopic dermatitis and hidradenitis, we're really working to find monoclonal antibodies, targeted biologic therapies that really focus on that specific pathway, the specific autoimmune pathways involved in each disease in order to minimize side effects. So I do think that we're going to see, and there are certainly clinical trials going on now, looking at new biologics um, that are tailored to the inflammatory pathways specific to these different diseases, and hopefully we'll have more with, with far fewer side effects in the future. I think it's an exciting time. There are lots of clinical trials that are that are ongoing. That's great. And we'll look for your name on those papers, I'm sure, in the future. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jenny. Uh, Dr. Jenny Clark, thank you so much for sitting with us and talking about, we can't express enough how thankful we are to have your academia to support the SCPA and to uh, help us get smarter about these diseases and diagnostics therapeutics. That's what it's all about is getting these folks better. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks again for watching Dermcast TV, Washington, D.C. It's Rob Kiskeho. <laughs>